Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, Paul, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Oh, good. There you are. You're in my, you're in my ear now. <laughs> oh, that's that got to be irritating. <laughs> hey, Doug, Brian. Good to see you, Matt. Hey, Jim. How you doing? Most perfect. Oh, I can't get better. Hello, Paul. Hey, Brent. How you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Good. Hey, your uh, uh, podcast episode that was released this week, I found really good. Oh, okay, good. What remind me which one you're talking about? Um, it dealt with uh, uh, creation and and how evil is the removal of creation back into nothingness. Oh, the the sermon then. Yes, yes. Oh, oh, good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, it brings to mind something that occurred to me years ago that uh, that you know the Big Bang theory. I'm kind of from the science background. That the Big Bang theory is just another creation story. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think it's uh, you know a plausible story. Sure, I, I'm never quite sure how all of it fits together. Certainly, like a creation ex nihilo, is it seems to me too that humans really can't come up with a non-creation story. But I don't know. That's just a just a thought I run with. Yeah, you know Stephen Hawking, who came up with the mathematics proving the Big Bang theory, actually didn't like the theory himself you know partly because he he was not a believer of any kind and yet he himself said you know in a brief history of time that you have to resort to using the term god and of course he just used it with a small g yeah and so he spent i mean he was working on other stuff too but he was working on black holes and but uh, he really wanted to get beyond Big Bang and cosmology and offered alternatives that I think he that were not pl- very plausible, you know, like a bouncing kind of universe or something. He's trying to read a, a kind of get rid of any beginning, you know. Yeah, yeah, just a continuous state almost. Yeah. After doing uh, Origin, you know, whether we have access, you know, maybe that's a kind of silly idea, even scientifically. To whether we have access to the beginning, because uh, of course the science breaks down in Big Bang, in, in other words, uh, yeah, that yeah. the laws of physics rather break down. They sure do. Whether we have conceptual access, I mean, that's kind of the problem with the pre-existent Christ. Can you talk about before the beginning? And and I think we often uh, imagine we can theologically. And scientifically, I don't think that there is such a thing as before the beginning. Right. That seems right to me. Now, what that does, I'm not sure how comfortable I am with it. And I think we have to nuance what we mean. But there is the sense that that the universe is part of the eternal purposes of God, that there is eternality in the universe. You know, this is the way we talk about Christ, that we don't talk about Christ inside and outside. No, we only know him in and through as creator and in and through creation. Right. Yeah. I'm glad to get your comment on that. I I thought maybe I was flying over everybody's head with that one. No, not at all. Well, if everybody's clear, I will go ahead and say some stuff. Uh, Jim, you kind of put me on to Hannah Arendt and got me thinking about Hannah Arendt. And so maybe just her formula you know, that uh, she's dividing, and I'll quote her here in a minute. She is distinguishing between power and violence. And I think that as we begin reading chapter four, and I'm also thinking of the first sentence of uh, chapter five, this may sound fake to you. That is, I I can imagine that you're all going to be immediately skeptical. Maybe it needs some proof. And that is the idea, you know, if you had to state what Paul's picture of power is in terms of chapter 4, in what does power lie for Paul? 
you know, the obvious answer in God, in Christ. But but what is the way in which we take up that power? Seemed like truth. Okay, truth is power, which would be a very Baconian understanding. Uh, wh how, where did you get that, Jonathan? Well, it talks about uh, speaking the truth in love. Okay, so truth leads to love. Truth is tied to community, right? There, there is an ethical aspect to truth that is unified. The only, the only word that comes to mind is, is, is love. I think power. that's it. The power of love, you know. We can say the same thing in many forms, and this is actually what Hannah Arendt. She doesn't quite get there, but I think uh, building from a Christian perspective, you know, the power of love, the power of community. The power of communion, and of course, the communion is a communion with God and Christ. You know, she's going to talk about the power in a democratic system of a unified, you know, numbers. She'll talk about the power of democracy, but I, I, I think we're not really departing from that. And all of these stand over and against I, the notion for her, and I think this is true here in uh, for Paul that the notion that violence is power. And so I think, you know, if we had to identify the lie, I forget a little bit, you know, we, we identified the mystery. I'm not dogmatic on this, but I think at least part of the understanding of the mystery is the obscurity of evil, of sin, of a lie. And so, you know, this, this is Gerard's point, is that the scapegoating mechanism is the mystery hidden since the foundation of the world. Uh, he refers to, you know, that's the name of one of his key books. I think we could describe the Girardian mystery, but I think uh, I'll approach it also uh, through Peter Berger. But if you go to, I, I really liked Hart's translation. It's on uh, chapter 4, verse 25. He just makes the the translation therefore shedding the lie he says the the term there is singular and i assume then that he's talking about a singular universal deception your point jonathan let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor to be able to pass from the truth to the you know path out of a lie to the truth and this then results in we become members of one another, that you walk no longer as Gentiles in the futility of your mind, darkened in your understanding, and then excluded from the life of God because of ignorance. We, we can describe this ignorance, this futility, and I'll, I'll describe it. We already know Gerard. I'll just, are all of you familiar with Peter Berger a little bit? I'll describe it in Peter Berger's terms, and there's a lot of convergence between what Peter Berger is doing and what uh, Gerard is doing. Not complete convergence. There's a little bit of difference. And so he talks here about because of the hardness of their heart, and they have become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality, impurity, and, and greediness. And as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there. You know, we talked last week about rooted and grounded in love. Here's an ontology. You're no longer carried away by the trickery of men. The way that Berger is going to describe the, the human obscuring, human society, is in and through a process that is dependent upon deceitfulness. I wanted to point out one other thing here before I jump into this and kind of reverse engineer Gerard. You know, Gerard comes to all this. He's really trying to explain scapegoating and violence. And then he comes to Christianity. Even mimesis in his own theory is a development, you know, that is a bit that is later after he deals with violence and scapegoating. But then later, when he becomes a Christian, then he realizes, oh, but there is a, a good mimesis, right? And of course, this makes us think of chapter 5, verse 1. Imitate, being imitators of God and walking as Christ walked seems to be key. And I, I would, you know, I would say we need to appeal to that all the way back up through. And so I think that 
reverse engineering Gerard from a kind of uh, Christian standpoint really puts mimesis front and center as the shaping force in our lives. You know, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for an offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. I think it's through imitation, it's through mimesis that we're formed as human beings. Uh, this is true linguistically, but this is true sociologically. Uh, everybody understands what that concept that the child, you know, the child imitating the parents, that's the way you learn language. But that's also the, that's the way that sociocultural, you know, entry into the sociocultural order functions. I was going to say that registers, I guess, it's, isn't Girard also dealing with desire? Isn't it, you know, we, we desire the things we see other people desire. I mean, that's part of imitation as well. But right, right. Really and that, what they're doing, but the, what they imagine themselves to, to want to do. Yeah, desire is, is imitated. Desire is learned, which is an odd concept maybe for us because we just feel, oh, it's just in our gut, you know. This is one of the things that's not there in Peter Berger. Peter Berger really doesn't talk about. He talk, he'll talk a little bit about mimesis. Let's hit upon the mystery again. You know, the Jew-Gentile is the archetypical problem that creates a divide, the dividing wall of hostility, 214. And this divide organizes the Jewish world. You know, in 2.15, he says he connects it to the law and the commandments. The enmity of the law creates a kind of fabric, a fictional understanding. And again, I, I, I think it is the orientation of the Jews. It's not necessarily, though Paul at points just says point blank, the wall of hostility is the law and its commandments. He nuances that elsewhere. And what he's saying is that the Jew-Gentile, the Jewish religion, but if that's the archetype of all religious understanding or the, or the problem, we could say that every system is built upon enmity and violence. It's The understanding is built upon this enmity. And, of course, this is what Christ abolishes. This is where we're cured of this. I'm doing a review to bring us up to chapter 4. And, of course, the idea, uh, Brent, in connection to creation ex nihilo, you know, we kind of play with that category sometimes in a, in a Hegelian sense. This is what Hegel does. Uh, this is what Marx does. They'll talk about, about a dialectic. You know, Hegel talks about a dialectic between nothing and something. But, of course, he's talking about it in a kind of positive sense as if this is a, a true dialectic. That is, you need the nothing in order to have the something. This is where the psycho, you know, Zizek and Lacan, they're picking up Hegel here. That That is a part of, or an example of, the same thing that we're talking about with Jew-Gentile. That for the Jews, the Gentiles are really the marker of nothing at all. And they are something over and against this nothing, you know, that that Jewishness is over and against. It's an absolute something over and against this filth or this dirt. And this enmity, this antagonism, is definitive of what it means to be a Jew. If you don't have the antagonism to the Gentile, you don't have Jews. And the dividing wall, you know, even though in the Old Testament, God repeatedly through the prophet says, I'm the God of all peoples, you know. And so the organizing hostility that is there for Jews is also there for Gentiles. In other words, Paul is using this as an archetype of the mystery, as, as I see it. You know, there's a mystifying ignorance. There is a darkness attached to the way that we understand the cosmos. And Paul says as much. He says to be specific in 3.6, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the divine purpose in creation, that they're partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. He just undid Judaism in a sense, but not really, because what he, it is a fulfillment of this. And that Christ then reconstitutes humanity 
on a different principle. Not this mystifying hostility, but showing forth the divine purposes in creation. You know, this is 2.15 to 16. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. Christ kills the enmity. Can we ask the question, what is the mechanism destroying the barrier, the, the dividing wall of hostility? Can we structure that? what that means? Can we put that into different words, sort of like a bridge from the hostility and the division into life? And I thought of, in another class, the, uh, the lamb, Azazel? The Azazel goat and the Yahweh yeah, the goat. goat. Yeah, that cleanses, that brings life. I'm trying to cross that bridge into a positive. Your Yours is yeah. the wonderful question, and, and of course the key question. Uh, how can we describe in a positive fashion what Christ has done? Yeah. Um, one way is in, in and through the revealing of the scapegoat mechanism, you know, so there's kind of the negative part of this. We can do better than that. It is more than just the revealing of the scapegoat mechanism. There is a positive displacement of the violence that is there in the scapegoating mechanism, and people are rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, in the unification of the body of Christ. I almost can answer your question better negatively. And, and your question is the correct question. You're saying, let's describe this in a positive fashion. Yeah. And I like the question, and I should be, uh, let me skirt it momentarily. I think we can. Let me come back to it. I, I, I think that is the key question, though. Point one, we're, we're no longer, you know, if we understand what the, how the negative functions, it depends upon Jewishness, dependent upon dividedness enmity, hostility, and in some way we get the idea that violence is a kind of uh, reifying category, that violence creates a kind of substantive appearance of things. Partly we can approach that, and, and partly I think that that's just the way that violence always functions. You know, we understand, oh, that's the way it functions is an scapegoating mechanism, there is the sense that violence always functions that way, not just in that particular instance. Judaism is a case in point of the obscurity of every culture and religion founded upon a kind of antagonistic dialectic, you know, inside, outside, near, far, something, nothing, citizen, alien. So the, the dialectic or the dualism uh, is going to be undone so that in Christ, heaven and earth are brought together. God and man are brought together. The, the will of God is made known for the cosmos. We now understand what God is doing. Paul means for us to extrapolate from the Jew-Gentile example to the universal mystery that is revealed in Christ. Paul will talk about a universal darkness and then he talks about God's eternal purposes have been revealed in Christ. And so he says, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches, riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. This sounds very much like the Matthew passage, the mystery hidden since the foundation of the world. He says this the this mystery, and this is in three eight, has been hidden in God, who created all things. What has been hidden? Well, the purposes of creation are obscured behind the mystery of enmity and division and are now revealed in a in a unifying vision. You know, this is where we're coming in uh, chapter 4, one faith, one body, one Lord, one baptism. We kind of have this almost a monistic picture, whereas before we had a dualistic picture. 
there is uh, one spirit, one God and Father. That is, the, where other things formerly we depended upon division, dialectic, enmity, and he concludes that in 4, 4 to 6, that now we have one in God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. God is filling up all things. You know, the way that David Bentley Hart describes this, uh, the, the very being of God is becoming God in creation. That is, that he's becoming Lord, he's becoming God in our lives, in rational, spiritual, uh, that, that we are part of what the all in all, the finishing of creation is taking place. And so let me make a leap here and say the mystery revealed in Christ is the exposure of the lie, which pictures reality as a dualism, you know. Uh, it's always divine, human, creator, creature, nothing, something, life, death, heaven, earth. Maybe we could even do this theologically. Eminent trinity, economic trinity, transcendent, eminent. That the mystery revealed is an exposure of the mystification of evil. Uh, the evil is dependent upon alienation, dualism, and violence. It's, maybe it's like an echo. It came back to me, exposed the nothingness. Yeah, that 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 our tendency toward nothingness, as I've stated it, Brent pointed out. I I just did a a podcast. Creation ex nihilo opens creation to evil, not because God uh, has done evil, but returning to nothing would be evil, right? Returning if creation is not does not end in divinization, in theosis, in apocatastasis. Isn't there the sense that it re would return then, if it's less than divine, then isn't there the sense that it's given over to the ex nihilo from out of which it was created? And this gets at, I think, the passage in 4, 7 to 10. It says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. And in some way, the ascension, of Christ is a kind of defeat of the enemy. He gave gifts to men, and in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? I guess he went to the highest heights of heaven and the lowest depths of hell, or Hades, or, you know, here is the harrowing of hell. He brings together heaven and earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, again, that he might fill all things. Isn't that something like divinization, theosis? That here is the completion of creation in its participation in who God is. And could we conceive of it being anything less than this? Wouldn't it be the case, this was my point last week, wouldn't it be the case that nothingness kind of wins out? And so Christ brings together the heights of heaven, the depths of the lower regions. He brings together divine and human, heaven and earth. I guess heaven had remained closed. Divinity remained veiled, right? I mean, that's the picture that Paul gives of Moses, and he describes Christ as revealing the mystery that had formerly remained veiled, which had been closed, he said, in 3.5 to every generation. You know, what Matthew says, that that thing hidden since the foundation of the world. And so my claim is, you know, what is the cause of the hiddenness of, of the divisions? Uh, I think we can name it. We can name the obscurity. I think Paul is naming it. And I think we can build upon calling this obscurity what it is. For the Jews, their religion, at least their understanding of their religion, in its division between Jew and Gentile, has obscured God's unifying purposes, his unifying rule over all things. You know, the, the prophets had said there, you know, there obviously this is at the heart of Judaism, that it is universal. But, of course, their tendency was to miss that. Can we say it even stronger? Their religion blinded them. Isaiah describes 
how it is that religion can blind. This is my illustration. Going into Peter Berger here, so if you get the simple illustration of idolatry in Isaiah, you know, this is Isaiah 44, 14 to 18. Somebody, you know, the guy, he, the farmer, he grows cedars, cypress, oak, uh, fir trees. He, he's the one, he, he, he makes them grow. And then he cuts one of them down, and half of it he cooks his lunch over. He warms himself by the fire. And with the other half, he fashions an idol. And, you know, you can kind of picture this, that he fashions the idol, he turns and cooks his lunch, warms himself, and he turns back to the idol and says, aha, a god. In other words, he obscures what he's done. He's obscured the fact that he's the idol maker. And this process, we can use Berger's three terms. Step one, he makes the idol. Externalization. Uh, and in externalization, uh, this is not just religious, this is what we do with culture, society. Let me quote Berger here. Whatever may be the ultimate merits of religious explanations of the universe at large, their empirical tendency has been to falsify man's consciousness of that part of the universe shaped by his own activity, namely the socio-cultural world. So this is true of the entire social world or, or reification of the social world. This falsification can also be described as mystification. The socio-cultural world, which is an edifice of human meanings, is overlaid with mysteries posited as non-human in their origins. You know, we see it in the idol. He, he, the guy obviously made it, but then he he's in some way denies that fact. And I think we could just illustrate that again and again, the, this kind of externalization, and then the objectivation is the, the idea. So this is Berger. Externalization is the ongoing outpouring of human being into the world, both in the physical and the mental activity of men. Objectivation is the attainment by the products of this activity, again, both physical and mental, of a reality that confronts its original producers as a facticity external to and other than themselves. Objectivation, you could call it reification, objectification. Uh, this is the key step because in some way we reify what we've made. And then the third step, internalization, is the reappropriation by men of this same reality, transforming it once again from structures of the objective world into structures of the subjective consciousness. So what they've made acts back upon them. This is his conclusion. It is through externalization that society is a human project. It is through objectivation that society becomes a reality sui generis. Sui generis just means, oh, it's an entity unto itself. It is without beginning, without end. It's just a fact. It's self-constituting. And this idea blocks all questions of genealogy. It's through internalization that man is a product of society. And so here, you know, the this is a common understanding. This is, I never say his name right, Mercia Eliade. You know, this is Eliade's notion I, uh, of religion, that religion, he says, is sui generis by definition. That is that the father of modern religious studies says that religion can't really be studied because it's sui generis. That is, it's just a fact. We can extrapolate from that. What Berger is saying, no, the sui generis aspect of it is a part of the uh, objectivation. You know, th this is the, the idol maker cutting off what he's made. It's just, you know, there as, as part of reality. And so Berger is 
and, and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping you're listening carefully because there's something wrong with what I'm saying here. Uh, I'm describing something and I'm backing myself into a corner and I hope you notice. Berger explains he's appropriating both Hegel and Marx. And I think, you know, that he gets this right from Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. You know, this is Marx's picture. If you had to say what Marx is primarily doing, it's a critique of capital. And we can see that, you know, in capital, you, you, know, you manufacture the coins and the paper, you externalize it, then you objectivize it. Though with money, it's kind of funny because I think we all know what we're doing. You know, we hold up the money and we, we kind of give it an intrinsic value. And then we internalize it. That becomes our primary value. I, I think the Constitution of the United States. Now, Matt, you may want to object here. I think our Constitution demonstrates the same thing. First three words of the Constitution, we the people, right? What people? Well, the people aren't constituted until you constitute them in the Constitution, right? Uh, there is the sense that you're, you have to constitute and then objectivize. In other words, the we, the people, have to appear sui generis. There's always, this is always the case, I think, in religion, that there has to be an obscuring of origins. Because if, you know, if the idol maker you know, traces what he's done, there's a kind of deconstruction, a demystification. That's partly what's happening with in uh, that the that is being described, the demystification that Christ is carrying out. Berger says that the self externalizes as a matter of its very nature. And you could do this with Freud, by the way, too. You know, the child looks in the mirror, externalizes it itself, the ego, and then objectifies, reifies and then internalizes. That is, our own self-relation is almost based on the same three-step process. And so the sum of its externalizations produces society, which becomes an objective reality that in turn acts on the individual. And this is, this is very parallel to what Gerard is doing. The externalization in Gerard's work begins with the scapegoating the, the picture of a kind of mystification of the scapegoat, the reification of the scapegoat, and then the, the creation of, a, of a, a, an institutionalization of sacrificial religion. I created a problem for myself, and I think Peter Berger creates a problem for himself. What's the problem? Does it sound good? Well, maybe I, mean, I, I think in theory, at least, I know, I'm, I'm not sure I can explain it, but I, I think I can see that <clears throat> the problem would be the struggle, the continued, you know, sort of buying into the mystification uh, element of it and um, uh, acting on it and saying, this is religion. It's just what we do. There's a inherent struggle in that that is a problem. It's going to be a problem. Always has been a problem. And if you're not seeing the truth, that reveals it or the, the the truth that it has has been revealed and not acknowledging that you're, you're kind of in futility. I think you're hitting upon it. And that is that Berger as a sociologist has left in place himself, no place to stand. By the way, Peter Berger's a Christian or he was, I, I imagine he's passed away now. In other words, if everything reduces to this, there's no room we have, we're going to have to redefine what Christianity is. If we make it simply sui generis, and I think that is that there is a demystification involved here. We're acknowledging the faith that we begin with. In other words, what Berger is describing, as Tim pointed out, is the religion acts as a kind of sacred canopy over the culture. So, you know, if the culture, things fall apart, well, the, 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 the sacred canopy is, you know, you project it up into the religious aspect and it holds together. Same thing with Gerard's scapegoating. It's a way of holding things together. What we're acknowledging when I think we acknowledge Peter Berger is what James McClendon calls the idea of, 
uh, religion being a set of powerful practices. We, we have to acknowledge the, the uh, social, the cultural, the communal aspect of the religion and understand that it only functions in that socio-cultural aspect. So, you know, this is McClendon. You know, you take a, a word, we, we ask the question, are people saved in other religions? Well, there's a problem with that question because what do you mean saved? Is saved the same? Does the, the word saved have the same meaning in Hinduism, in Sikhism, and Christianity? Or, in fact, is salvation a particular understanding connected with uh, the understanding of the teaching of Christ that gives not only that word meaning, but all of these words meaning. In other words, these words don't float free of a socio-cultural understanding. And we acknowledge that. I think we should, we must acknowledge that. We're not functioning on just some sort of universal understanding. Christ entered into history and he was a particular person at a particular time, and we understand who he was in and through that socio-cultural context. We contextualize Christianity, and I'll, I'll say it this way, and this may rub you the wrong way. We contextualize truth, not in the sense that, you know, not, not in a complete relativistic sense, but there has to be the sense that truth, this is where we begin, Jonathan, you know, that truth is over and against a particular lie. That it is the truth in the context of our understanding of a sociocultural reality, and so too salvation. This, this is a practical notion of what Christianity is and what salvation is. But then, then you need to do that with all the terminology. I, I'm not doing anything here other than what I think Paul is doing in Ephesians. That is that he always brings it home to a set of practices. That if you that that truth is this set of practices that exposes the lie. I don't think you can describe what human beings are from purely a biological sense. Uh, we're not finished yet. You know, we're the most uh, unfinished of creatures. I look out my window and the birds are busy. They know exactly what the they know exactly what their job is. They don't there's no mystery in being a bird. Or, you know, that and just that that they're that it's all there. The job is given, their work is given. The part of this I, that we talked a little bit about last week, that we are co-participants in our own creation. We are completing our own creation. And we, you know, what we're describing here with Peter Berger, in a part, it's in, in, a, in one sense, it's a kind of negative understanding, but understand it, that it, it is also a necessary part of a creation, an unfolding of meaning that is not just a given. Uh, and so humans are the most unfinished species, and its project of world building is never ending. Human world building is a consequence of its biological constitution. World building is a consequence of insufficient instincts. Therefore, world building becomes acute and absolutely necessary in order to survive. We have to live in a particular world, in a particular context, with a particular meaning system. And I think as Christians, we acknowledge that. We understand this is not a given, right? In other words, the world is not just given to us. The, the worldview that we have is one that we choose. Most, most cultures don't, you know, that self-awareness would be destructive to the worldview. And so there's a kind of open-ended aspect, a, a creative moment in this unfinished human nature. Uh, and, of course, the point is this is also, this world building is open to deception, right? We can be deceived. <clears throat> and that's what Paul, 
is weaving throughout Ephesians 4. And I'll come back, we'll come back to that. He keeps talking about the lie, the deception, the darkness. There, there's a you know, Berger really doesn't do much with he's really not focused on violence to the degree that Gerard is, but Berger also is presuming that this world building, you know, this world construction is over the fear of death. That is, that death is the driving force in this understanding. You know, the difference in Gerard is, for Gerard, a primitive culture is probably, probably the primary model. For Gerard, it's not just death, but it's violence. It's violent death. It's uncontrolled violence. So it may be that what the difference is really that Peter Berger is lo looking at a modern social context. In Berger's work, there's a you know the, the there's a great deal of focus on the sacred as a protection against chaos. You ha you have to create a meaning system, uh, and this sacred enables humans to experience meaning. It protects them from death. This is the, the kind of the sacred canopy through which human activity, you know, the holy order, the, the holy cosmos, in spite of the chaos, is described. I think what Gerard and Berger are both doing, and I think what we need to be careful that we are not doing, they're thinking of an originary violence. They're thinking of an originary chaos. I think this is precisely what Genesis is written against, and I think this is what we're coming to in Christ. It's not an, you know, there is the chaos there, but the chaos is already taken care of. Have you all read John uh, uh, Walton? John Walton. That's the way he pictures, you know, the creation myths. It's, it's always coming out of chaos, and he, he notes, well, that's the difference in Genesis. I think the issue of the sacred, in that their, their theories converge, the obscuring of what we are doing surrounding the sacred. This is our tendency today, even, in, in, in war, in acts of violence. The sacred, the violent, is something which emerges out of the chaos. You know, this is the scapegoat. And by losing contact with the sacred, Humans stand in danger of being swallowed up by the chaos. I think Berger and Gerard both agree. For for Gerard, it's a chaotic violence. Can we imagine, or can we can we connect that to suffering? Is is like suffering like an edge of chaos that we comes to us, or is is there any overlap? Or with yeah, suffering, suffering is, disease, death, famine, plague. Yeah. You know unnatural death, natural death. Uh, yeah, I think that's all part of the chaos. Yeah. God, why are you, you know, why is this happening to me? Well, we know why it's happening. You've sinned and God is punishing you. Or, you know, we've, in other words, we, that, that people are quick to come up with an explanation because I think that, that to, to be given over to the chaos, to not have a meaning system, it's too much. And the danger is, I'm afraid, that, that we would make of Christianity one more, you know. In other words, we really don't need a theodicy because we, the, the, the belief in a kind of an originary peace. That doesn't mean that we have an explanation for the suffering, but we understand that Christ conquers death and suffering and all that goes with it. Does Hannah Arendt sort of do the same thing? Or because uh, when you threw Gerard back in there with Berger and the rest, it shook me a little bit to think, oh, even Gerard did it. What about Hannah Arendt in, in her identification of, of the lie and the, the truth about uh, violence? Was she setting up the dualism as well. Jim, you are you probably know more about <laughs> Hannah Arendt than I do. I want to have a nice, tidy answer. All that comes to mind now is she has this knack of going back in time to original language like Plato and Greeks and Aristotle. She'll like thread a needle with those 
terminologies and just like sew it into a fabric of history and trends and like she'll bring it up through Hitler, Marxism. She'll land in just a practical space. And that's all I can think of to say now. She, I, I want to say she doesn't set things up in, di- in a dialectic fashion. I think she's very aware, she's very aware of Hegel, and she. I yeah. at least I'm. Uh, I haven't. Re- I haven't read. I've, Jim sent me some books, and I've uh, uh, haven't even read all those. But yeah, she's very aware. She doesn't want to do Hegel. I think that's always a problem, because I think in some way we all fall. But Hegel just kind of does everything. You know, as David Bentley Hart says, you're either a Christian or you're Hegelian, and and there's a sense that that's true that Hegel just kind of covers all the bases in the what dialogue. If what if you're Jewish and you're not Hegelian? <laughs> Is that a possibility? Because I it wasn't Hannah Arendt Jewish, and she also, I guess, had some awareness of Christianity. And, and maybe this is co- coming at it from a different perspective, a different angle, to think about the fact that Christians can miss it they can miss the miss the truth uh, and sort of not see the lie that's expo- exposed, and they can somehow still. I'm thinking, you know, Luther, Calvin, um, and the, their way of articulating the me- meaning of the atonement. But you know, we still, I still grew up in Lutheran, Calvin, evangelical, Protestant tradition, and I know Jesus Christ when I see him. <laughs> I know that Ephesians chapter four kind of life, when I see it lived, we also have Hannah Arendt and Gerard, a literary theorist who looks at this theory and, you know, scapegoating, he finds scapegoating through mimesis and he finds it by doing literary criticism. What, in what sense is the truth of Jesus Christ sort of released into the modern world through society and culture by I don't know. I don't know if you'd call it the Holy Spirit or the witness of Scripture or just the lives of Christians where you can stumble upon and sort of name something like Gerard did. I know he eventually became a Christian if he wasn't already. Yeah, Um, his background was Catholic, but I get the sense that he was not trying to bolster his faith. He was just doing research. Oh, I so, think I think he came to be a, a a sincere believer. That's what I understand, but I don't think it was like something he was necessarily trying to do. So I I don't know. My question is: Is everybody Hegelian? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe maybe it's that even if you are Hegelian, you know, the truth comes through, even if your theory's wrong or your your idol factories in full production. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. That, that that sounds wrong when I say it, but I, I'm just wondering. And in, in originally my question was, okay, what's the connection between democracy that her aunt, Anna, Hannah Arendt was talking about and the answer of nonviolence in this space that opens up for peace? Um, yeah, I think for her, nonviolence is power. Brian, there's a chapter. She lays out exactly what you just said, what your question was about uh, democracy. And it, it's in the book Between Past and Future. And the chapter I've been taking notes on is, is about freedom. And she traces the concept of freedom beginning in a- Athens and Rome. And she traces it through. And I was sort of like got a little deep. And all of a sudden I saw that she said, the first instance or first example of freedom that historically like pronounced or announced was by the Apostle Paul. That caught my eye. Wow. I think she might have mentioned Augustine and Paul. She describes that internal division, the, the self is divided. She describes that in different in another way that we've we've been reading about. But then she lands on Paul and she says, He's the first historical instant, instance of the concept of uh, freedom. That's good. That's interesting. She just pits power over and against violence. Yeah. 
which I think is very interesting. Now, Jim, correct me if I'm wrong. I just haven't done much with Hannah Arendt. I, you know, she's as I get understand, she is an atheist, and so she's not the only that she is looking for a political solution more than anything else, and not necessarily uh, any kind of metaphysical. She she doesn't want to be called a philosopher. She wants to be called a political scientist or political. Yeah, yeah. And uh, she uh, lifts up like the local, the average Joe locally doing what he sees best to do for the community. And, and she just avoids all this abstract ideologies and stuff. I, I've talked about Hannah Arendt in the context of Martin Heidegger. So she's a student of Martin Heidegger. And in fact, was Heidegger's lover. And she's a Jewess. And she forgives Heidegger, which I, you know, I, I, she not only forgives him, I think she kind of brushes over what he did and says, oh, this is kind of a whoops sort of thing, you know. Whoops, I was a Nazi. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm sure it wasn't quite that easy. But she was quite willing to forgive him. As I never, I, I don't see her, and I, and I could be wrong in the, that she is just a political theorist. The thing that she's very famous for is the the Eichmann's trial in Jerusalem and coining the phrase, the banality of evil. And a lot of people attack that. And in fact, I, I don't know if you all are aware that there are new Eichmann tapes that have come out. You know, she, she portrayed Eichmann in the way that many say that he wanted to be portrayed as kind of a bureaucratic idiot that oh i was just obeying orders you know and just kind of unimaginative but in these other tapes that were actually recorded in uh or was he argentina he's it's a different audience these are local nazis that have gathered together and he's kind of bragging and it's a very different uh, Eichmann that comes out. In other words, what she was avoiding was to de describe him as a kind of diabolical evil figure. And what comes out in these tapes is, oh, he, he, he was happy. He found great satisfaction in the fact that he, he was able to murder this many Jews. And in fact, he says, if I could have killed them all, I would have. It's just, I mean, to hear it, it's chilling. Uh, it's chilling stuff. She was betraying him as kind of, you know, the a banal kind of simpleton. And in this, there's a new documentary coming out saying, no, the guy was actually, uh, even when Himmler wanted him to stop shipping Jews to the death camps, Eichmann refused. And he kept the death, you know, it was hurting the war effort because they were putting resources into killing Jews. Now, what you do with that, because she also gives us, she gives us two, two terms. The other term is radical evil, which actually comes out of Kant. And Kant poses this possibility that would someone do the evil for just evil itself? And Kant proposes this, and he backs away from it. He says, oh, this can't be. And she actually then talks about the rad radical evil. Isn't it just a extension of the death drive? I mean. I think that's it. I think that, that it is. Yeah, I think it is a, uh, I think there's a force for evil uh, in, in uh, 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 potentially in human personality. It's not banal. It's not a simply being given over to evil. There is a dark side to this thing, and I think we have to acknowledge that. Part of this, you, you, you can't explain this, that you can't explain evil. And the other thing is that, that what Christ is defeating in defeating the prince of the power of the air, we, you know, to say radical evil, we, we can, I don't think we can believe that there is such a thing as an ontological grounding for evil. Right? Does everybody understand that? In other words, you can't have God is one ontological pole and the devil is another ontological pole. 
But what I would say is, yes, but you can believe in radical evil. That is, that you can structure your life as if radical evil is the case. And this is the lie. This is the deception. You know, Anton LaVey, you know, kind of evil, be thou my good. I think he's kind of playing a game. But is there such a character? I think that potentially, at least, there is someone who can order their life according to a kind of uh, darkness. And I'm happy for somebody to come along and say, ah, that can't be right. You know, we all hope we never encounter such people. But I presume that there are such people that have ordered their life in this manner. And I would hold up the possibility that Adolf Eichmann, Adolf Hitler, the Adolfs, does anybody name their child Adolf anymore? I don't know. That, that they would be an example of this. I, I think somebody like the Marquis de Sade is an example of this. Would, would it not be that you know, anybody that becomes obsessed with just themselves would be oriented to that sort of, sort of radical evil? Yeah, I mean, one of the concerns with AI is that, you know, you'll give it an order and it's going to kill the world by making a, the best paperclip or the most efficient paperclip or whatever, right? That's Y'all have heard that um, example, I'm sure. And it seems kind of like that's, you know, a way that radical evil works in humans. When, when you stop thinking of others or you stop being oriented towards a greater good or whatever, and all you're doing is trying to, you know, escape the death drive or satisfy, you know, whatever it is that, you know, you're you're just focused on yourself. I think that's that's right. going to be the result is there's going to be, you're going to be like the Adolfs or Putin or, you know, whatever evil genius we want to come up with. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we probably do know people like that <laughs> you know, yeah. to some extent, maybe not on that order, but. Yeah, I always, the, the example, who was it? Hugh Hefner, of my, my more my generation, you know, uh, is there, is this guy really just living his life for sensuous pleasure? Or is this kind of a facade that he puts on to sell magazines? I think that's all Hugh Hefner wrote. It was his own pleasure that was driving him, which of course is, is deadly. Who's the guy that Jeffrey, uh, who's the guy, Epstein? seems to be another example of the same thing. You know, just somebody who clearly, and and people gravitated to him. So, yeah, I think there there are, what you're describing, I, I think that there are such people out there. It is frightening. Well, I don't think as Christians we can believe in radical evil as, you know, the Satan is not over a, a polar, you know, ontological opposite to God. But I believe in the, the world that we can construct, that at least that is held out as a possibility for us, that we can believe this thing and devote ourselves to it. But the, the point with Hannah Arendt is that her picture of true power is association, the power of association, the power of democracy. And violence, of course, is a kind of, of a sort of powerlessness. And so, you know, this is, the I think, where the Holy Spirit in, enters in, the paraclete enters in, that Christian mimesis, Christian desire, is being joined to God. And I think that in our, we have to convince ourselves, I think we have to come to believe this is really true power. I think that's the lesson to be drawn here. That in our own deluded understanding, we could imagine the Jeffrey Epstein's, the Hugh Hefner's, the you know the the dictators, the the political uh, genocide is really an exercise of power, and I think we what we have to acknowledge, no, that's not that is actually a form of powerlessness. I think she hits this, and and I think that's what Paul said. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, 
or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.